My man, how we doing, dude? Oh, just uh, amped to be here with you as always, brother. Thanks, dude. Yeah, we are. We're just talking off air about uh, living in certain different places. So uh, yeah, we're in North Carolina right now. So if the Wi-Fi is a little shoddy, we'll see what's up. Um, but otherwise, you'll probably catch us doing another kind of venture out to Colorado to see what it's like there. Mostly just to hit a lift and head over to N one and do some lengthened work on like a vertical lap machine. But yeah, I can't maybe maybe re- relocating our entire family just to be closer to like n1 and stuff but but obviously that's that's tongue-in-cheek but um when we get out there we'll have to hit a hike or something yeah i'm lobbying super hard for the lipses to end (laughs) up in boulder but i also uh feel somewhat confident that n1 isn't going to be here forever so um you know i don't think that would be a a big reason to move here there's many other many other quality reasons to be in Boulder. a million yeah cool we're obviously chatting about failure training today there was a uh, paper released by people. I know that both of us are, uh, love the dudes from data, different data driven strength, uh, Zach and Josh, both been on our podcast, I believe super smart, a bunch of other people on that paper too. Uh, and you're the guest will bounce back and forth, but just give us like a little bit of like, Hey, here's kind of what this, this, what they did. And here's, you know, we'll go back and forth on a little bit of what they found, but like, why is this paper, this all the rage right now? Yeah, I mean, essentially what they did is they did a a meta-analysis, more or less, a meta-regression, kind of the same idea. Um, And they looked at all the studies and they found that for hypertrophy, there's more stimulus when you get closer to failure. And I don't think that should be a huge surprise to too many people. I think maybe the surprise would be that there didn't seem to be a notable increase in fatigue that would mask the stimulus potentially as you get closer to failure. And so I think in prior iterations of this idea within the industry, we had a lot more of the, well, if you go too close to failure, you get too much fatigue and then, you know, your whole fucking rest of your week is screwed or whatever. Um, So that's one thing obviously to discuss, but, uh, and then I guess for strength, they didn't find that at all. Um, And then one other interesting thing they found was that for hypertrophy, it didn't even seem to matter if you went to failure for like sets of five to eight so much Uh, as, you know, I actually think in some ways that's proof of concept for the effective reps model of like, you know, hey, if that shit is hard from the very first rep, then you probably don't need to go all the way to failure versus when you're doing 15 plus reps not only is, you know, you got to get through these kind of ineffective reps to get to the effective ones, but then you have the ambiguity of whether you're actually at failure because your muscles are failing or that stuff just hurts so much that you don't want to continue. Um, so that would be my general overview. Anything to add to that? Yeah, they, they, whatever. They looked at a ton of studies that used RIR. And by the way, for those listening, I'm going to have Zach and Josh, two of the authors on the paper, come on. They've been on the podcast before. They're, they're awesome. Uh, so we're, Brian and I today are not going to do a deep dive into like the study methodology and and deep into the limitations, which I think we'll touch on a little bit because they affect kind of our takeaways. Uh, but as far as getting like a full on more scientifically literate breakdown of exactly how it was done, we're going to have Zach and Josh on. And essentially, I guess my, my big take homes were, hey, for strength gain, getting super mega close to failure versus like being a couple reps shy didn't make a difference. And in that regard, actually, they saw better results when people were a smidge further from failure with really heavy loads. And we'll talk about, there's a sentence in within the strength take-homes that like, I, I can't quite figure out. Uh, my It's like a brain twister. Um, and then for hypertrophy, what they found was actually that there was 
a non-linear relationship, meaning that it was like even better stimulus to fatigue ratio, like getting closer to failure. Like it wasn't like linear where like five is just as much better as than six, which is just as much better from four to five, just as much better from three to four. It actually looked like it was like actually ascending into an, in a non-linear fashion. And so uh, TLDR of the hypertrophy side of things was like, hey, like on a set to set basis, like you get more stimulation, more hypertrophy stimulus by going close, by going closer to failure. And I just... I just feel like that's, I just, I, I read both of that. I'm not saying that you or I are both know-it-alls or not, but like, I just, that, that what neither of those things where it's like, hey, you don't need to go mega, mega, mega close to, to failure for strength. And I, I don't want to start with that because I think we can have a longer talk about hypertrophy because that's more of our pursuit and our audience pursuits, but we'll talk about the strength first. But the hypertrophy side of things, it's like, yeah, if you train a little bit, like if you're training harder on a set, you're going to get more stimulus from that set. And I kind of, people are like, <laughs> Training to failure is really is like the most stimulative. And I'm like, yeah, like you, I, I just feel like there was, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, where like there was this whole discussion born of, hey, if you're within five reps from failure, you can make equivalent gains. That is true, but there's an inverse relationship between intensity and volume where if you're going to train with three to five RIR, you're going to have to do more sets than somebody training in, let's say, zero to three RIR to equate the stimulus. And so the, the idea that you could get equivalent gains training from further, further from failure, you can. You just have to do more sets. And that, that second part is just always forgotten. People are like, oh, a set. Like people have taken that and been like, oh, a set at three RIR and a set at zero RIR are the same thing. And that zero RIR is more fatiguing. So I'm not going to do those. And that's not at all the case. Did you did you have a similar like gut feeling when you kind of read the paper and how people were responding to it? Yeah, I mean, uh, completely. And that last statement you made about the the inverse relationship of intensity and volume that like actually bothers me constantly in the social media online space because people are all the time sliding into my DMs being like, "Why are you training to failure? You can get just as good results like at three RIR or whatever." And I'm like you do understand that I'm doing two sets and that you would have to do four or five sets if you were training at three RIR. And then they write back oftentimes and they're like, oh, I didn't realize that. And I'm like, really? Like you didn't realize that? That's kind of like, it should be the main message associated with that statement. When it says you can get just as good gains with three RIR, it should be like asterisk, you must do more volume or something along those lines. Like it has to be there every time. Um, so anyway, I just... It, it wasn't a surprise to me, the meta-analysis, as far as it relates to hypertrophy, because I think it's stuff that like you or I or anybody in the, the game for long enough, we've, we can feel that like within, within a set, we can feel there's more stimulus there when you go to failure and you can feel that you can probably get a similar stimulus doing two or three sets with some RIR as you would to that one set that you really took to the house. And so, um, I mean, maybe that's some of it to speak to the fact that we just are experienced and we know our bodies and we're self-aware and, and all that stuff. But I mean, it just, it should make sense conceptually as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, if that's like your, you know, I, I suspect if I were on the other side of the argument, kind of arguing a little bit more in favor of training on average, a smidge further from failure, my argument would have to come from a maximizing stimulus to fatigue ratio. And I think the further you move towards zero RAR, maybe you'd probably be arguing from a from an efficiency standpoint. I don't know that we know yet that there's a sweet spot of stimulus to fatigue ratio. This paper tends to think tends to um tends to give off the uh interpretation that it would be closer to failure, that actually that's mm -hmm. where the best SFR would be. 
that one of the limitations that is acknowledged by the authors is that this was an acute study an acute study uh the studies were about eight weeks long and so there's nothing that we can really know about how long-term accumulations or or adapt adaptations to fatigue would happen over the long term but um i think that that a lot of people are like, wow, learning for the first time that there's more, you can get more stimulus per set training to failure. And I just want to just start by saying like that, whatever, shouldn't be news to people. But if it is news to people, that's awesome. I think that they're like, I think, you know, you and I are are, are knee deep in, in, in the pursuit of efficiency. And if this gets more people to be like, hey, more stimulus per set by training to failure, maybe I can decrease the amount of time I'm spending in the gym. Like, not, it's funny because the... All of, like I was talking about a podcast recently, like all of the lengthened work and train to failure stuff that's coming out. I have no interest in packaging that stuff into how to optimize gains. I only have it from a laziness lens of like, these are both ways for me to get more stimulus per set such that I can do less sets and still make X amount of gains, however much, you know, I want at that time. And so um, I'm pumped for it, you know, as much as it's like an, a small eye roll of like, yeah, you know, we kind of should have suspected this already. Like I'm pumped for another like feather in the cap of like efficiency from an efficiency perspective. Yeah. I, um, I actually have like a mini theory that part of the reason we're seeing this, uh, further from failure for the strength work is that it's focusing entirely on these massive, large compound movements like deadlift, squat, bench press, multi-joint movements, right? Extending multiple joints. And when you're looking at this meta-analysis or meta-regression that was done by these guys, it's a combination of studies that include compound movements and isolation movements. But I wonder if, you know, that whole idea of if you're doing sets of five to eight reps, you don't really need to be at failure because you're getting enough stimulus, you know, can from I, can the I, first. Can I pause you real quick? So can yeah. I pause you real quick? I know you're I just want to say that one of the other takeaways that I think you're going to address a little bit was that uh from a rep range perspective, that working at lower reps with heavier loads, you didn't have to go as close to failure and working with lighter weight uh at higher reps, you had to get closer to failure. That was kind of another one of the take-homes. And so go, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, yeah. So so as I was saying, like the because you're not going to be performing lateral raises and bicep curls in like the five to eight rep range. Generally, I think that most of that is a result of the compound movements. And so then if you would kind of extrapolate that out a little bit further, I'm still of the belief, like if someone were to ask me, like, should I train my squats and RDLs to failure? I'm almost unequivocally going to tell you in most cases, no, you probably shouldn't go to failure on those movements. And that is partially a product of the fact that we do tend to train those in lower rep ranges. Um, but I probably wouldn't even tell anyone to go to failure on an RDL or a back squat in the 12 to 15 rep range. And so I just wonder how much of that information that we're seeing uh, between the strength and the hypertrophy and between the low rep ranges and the high rep ranges really has to do with exercise selection more than anything else. The strength, the strength, the improvement in strength performance at so essentially they found that if you train a couple reps shy from failure, people on average got stronger faster than if they trained all the way to failure. Um, I also feel, I, I see what you're saying where it kind of self-selects. Um, if you're if you're taking studies that that are looking at lower rep ranges, you're, on average, you're, those studies probably have more compound lifts than isolation lifts. And so there's, you're kind of looking at two things, even though you think you're, you're just looking at one. Um, 
part of me thinks that there's a, a technique uh, discussion there too, because I think as you're trying to develop, like like strength in and of itself is a neurological adaptation. Obviously having more muscle mass is a big contributor to how much you can lift, but getting neurological adapt, maximally attaining neurological adaptations probably doesn't happen. Like probably not requires, but it's probably best done with repeated um similar motor patterns where if you go very, very close to failure, you get a lot of grindy reps. That tends to be where you deviate from that perfect technique. And so I, I'm not so surprised that, you know, if, if you take people in these studies uh, and you're training them to failure on really heavy compounds, you're going to see a lot of technique breakdown. And I'm not surprised that maybe that, that technique breakdown is actually inhibiting them from getting maximally stronger where like one or two RIR probably means that your whole set was really dialing in that motor pattern and it was close enough. And the net of those two things probably lead, led to better strength gains. It's like what you might get in stimulus from that last rep or two, you probably you might lose adaptation wise in terms of strength expression because your technique is breaking down and you're not ingraining those like really high quality motor patterns. And the net of that might be just you're going to get stronger slower, and so that that tends to be what I'm imagining. Um, I'm 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 blanking on how trained all of the people were in the paper. I believe that I have it written down. Uh, do you recall where they? I'm pretty sure it was just a mix of whatever mix. studies were available. Yeah. yeah, so I'm even more sus of like people training back squats and deadlifts and compounds to failure uh, in terms of strength. So like you know with good technique. Yeah, I think it's the, well, you didn't say it in these exact words, but it's like, as you get close to failure and you're doing those grindy reps, there's like mini unintended compensations occurring. And so like, yeah, the motor pattern neurologically that you're trying to groove, it gets misgrooved kind of. It'd be like if you're trying to work on your sprint technique, but you've done a thousand sprints and now you're not actually sprinting properly. You're now just creating like bad habits, sort of. No, absolutely. There's a reason that you... Uh, whatever we can go into the sprint sprinting is a great example that if you are looking to gain neurological adaptations power and strength adaptations that you do them in earlier in the workout under less fatigue i mean that's the entire premise of gaining neurological adaptations is you don't necessarily like a sprinter is not practicing sprinting under really high amounts of fatigue where techniques going to change that is a worse way to do that and so yeah that that's certainly something i saw as well i i guess I'll stay, we'll stay on strength for a second, move to hypertrophy, but there's a statement that, and then I watched like Lane did like a little recap video the other day. I didn't know Zach coached him, by the way. That's super cool. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, right? And he said that, he, you know, Lane said a couple of times, he's like, it's not necessarily about the getting close to failure. It's about the, the lifting heavy part. The words exactly was like, um, um, uh, uh, I don't have the exact quote. I wrote a comment about it, but essentially like, oh, you just, you need to, it's the lifting the heavy weights and lifting progressive heavier, li progressively heavier weights that matters. And I'm like, can we just say that like, like he was trying to say that if you needed to, if you were lifting like sets of, you know, if you were going to do 300 pounds and you could do that for a, one set of five, uh, but you could, you could do, you'd be better off doing like 10 sets of two or something like that. And I was like, what really matters for strength is that, just like everything that you're progressively overloading it. Like, I mean, like it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm like, Hey, what's important for strength is that you're progressively lifting heavier loads. Like the, um, and, and I just, I wasn't necessarily sure where, where they were going with that. He's like, Oh, it's just important to lift heavy weight. I'm like, yeah, it's important to lift heavy weight and over time push yourself to lift heavier weight. And I was like, okay, like, 
aggressive overload then like I, did yeah. you catch any of that in there i didn't uh i didn't watch the lane thing cool. um but uh my guess would be that that it's just like uh, a means to an end like hey if you do all these sets of two it's going to increase your neurological efficiency you're going to get more out of it than you would the other way and therefore it will lead to progressive overload and lifting more weight over time yeah yeah cool i want to talk about um this idea that and you even said it, and I kind of agree, but I'm interested in what you think about this. So this idea of like, like I'm, I think at the end of the day, there's more nuance to this. When we talk about training to failure, like that was originally just like a thing that we would say training to failure. We wouldn't identify what really failure meant. We wouldn't acknowledge the multitude of different ways to apply that word contextually. Um, we wouldn't really think about it in terms of differences in exercises, but intuitively people would say things like, hey, don't take your compounds as close to failure, take your isolation stuff to failure. Um, so I think intuitively there was this understanding of there's a difference between exercises. And so when we talk about this idea of like, maybe don't go so close on compounds, or maybe you don't have to go so close on compounds. And I, I want to circle back around to the rep range. I'm going to make a note that we don't uh, rep range discussion. Um because I think that's another one of like another feather in the cap of like, maybe you don't do as many sets of 20 to 30, but we'll, we'll come back around. But when people say, maybe you don't need to go as close to failure on your compounds, I think of compounds and technically the definition of compounds is a multi-joint movement, right? And so it's like a lap pull, like an overhead pull down is technically a, a compound lift. And so I, I, and I know that the, we can be a bit pedantic and, you know, when people like heavy compounds, they're like squat bench deadlift. It's like, there's a lot of things that are compounds. Um, and so what, what about compound lifts makes people say this? And I'll give you a couple options. Is it that most of the compound lifts or many of them are overloaded in the length of position? Is it the fact that compounds work multiple joints? Is it like, oh, because it works multiple joints, you don't need to go as close to failure. Or is it because it's overloaded in the length of position, you don't need to go as close to failure. Or is it because in compound lifts, yes, there's multiple joints, but there's a lot of tissue that's worked. Often, you know, technically, you know, a lap pull down, I would argue like a glute bridge, the glutes might be bigger than all of those muscles being worked potentially, whatever. But on compound lifts, there's a lot of tissue being worked. Do I not need to go to close to failure because there's a lot of tissue being worked? Is it due to the fact that some of these compound lifts have high amounts of axial load, like high amounts of loading of the spine? And I just think of the word compound and there are not all compound lifts meet all those requirements. And so what are we, what are we really saying? If we're going to give a little bit more nuance of like, hey, these exercises maybe you don't need to slash shouldn't go as close to failure. And then we'll look at the other side of like, hey, maybe in these circumstances, we lean into that a little bit more. But what is it about the compounds? Is it because they're lengthened, overloaded? They're not all. Uh, is it because they work multiple joints? Okay, they all do that, but is that relevant? Is it because they work a lot of tissue? Is that relevant? Or is it because they have, uh, you know, some of them, you know, have high amounts of axial load? And, and would you recommend us be a bit more specific than just saying compounds, even though, okay, maybe in just like a throwaway sentence, it's a fine place to start. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a little bit of all of them. It made me laugh when you said that because we constantly have people in our group writing and being like, why doesn't this cycle have any of the compounds in it? And I'm like, the compounds, like we have, we have all of these different presses and like pulls and stuff. Pull and, squats yet and RDLs. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. RDLs yeah. And, and, yeah. and leg press. Right, right. Exactly. But it's not squat bench dead. Um, so, so honestly, I think it's all of the things you mentioned. It It's, it's lengthened, it's axial loading, it's tons of tissue. It, the one that I would exclude from that 
would be the ones that are short overloaded. So by itself, it seemed like lengthened is important, but lengthened isn't the only thing because then you would say that like an overhead tricep extension is also one of these like super fatiguing movements, which isn't the idea. It's got to be axially loaded, works tons of tissue, multi-joint, and lengthened overloaded. And then you get this like milieu, this perfect recipe for not having to go super close to failure. I think I would add on that list a lack of stability and a likelihood of technique breakdown. So when I think of like the multiple joints thing, like I'm not really sure how that's relevant outside of it kind of telling me, okay, if I'm moving multiple joints and I don't have a lot of stability, then that's probably a recipe for a likelihood of, of these subtle technique shifts as I get very close to failure. That to me is the biggest one. It's like, Working really close to failure on an RDL um, probably would be on our list of like, okay, on average, on a spectrum, we can be a little further from failure or would recommend doing that. And I think that that's, if we dissect the RDL, it's overload in the length of the position, right? Works a fuck ton of tissue, um, lacks stability. You, you know, you're it's not a leg press, right? Leg press, I think of a leg press, it, it hits all of these except the axial load and stability. Um, RDL has no stability, has axial load, loads the spine, works a ton of tissue, multiple joints, length and overload, a very high likelihood of, of technique adjustment. I mean, by the end of your zero RAR RDL, if I come in and start screaming to you, you can probably do more, but you're going to bend your knees more. You're going to flex at the spine. You might not go as low. There's so many opportunities for you to modify your technique to continue the set. And I think that to me is like the big one of like, um, yeah, I think the RDL is the perfect storm of, I don't probably need to go as close to failure because failure is super incredibly hard to, to actually identify where it is. Cause I have such an opportunity yeah. to move my knees a little bit more to go, you know, a little bit, not as deep and, and start to modify my technique to get more. Yeah. I mean, I honestly think you could probably like do five perfect reps and then still get five. Like you'd be at failure of perfect form at five, and then you could end up getting 10. And it's like your tenth one clearly doesn't look like it, but it happens gradually rep to rep. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I think if we're looking at like the compound, like if I was to not not nitpicking, because I think saying compounds like kind of is a gets most of these right most of the time. But if we're looking at exercises where I think you don't need to go as close to failure to get near maximal results, it probably would be multi joint movements that are overloaded in the length of position that lack stability and that load the spine. Yeah. Um, and are ripe for like m technique micro adjustments as you get yeah. close to failure. I think that kind of goes into play there. Um, yeah. I have yeah. no problem with taking like a pendulum or like a hack squat or a leg press or something like that to failure. I, I could see that being, uh, following that model of being more stimulative as you get to, and I guess even past failure, if you want to try like a bottom partial or something like that. Yep. And, and, and on the flip side, we can flip all of these and say, when we have the opposite of these, that it is safer to push close to failure and you're more likely to have that stimulus be localized to the place you want it. So you have exercises that are harder in a short position that work or single joint movement uh, that don't load the spine and provide a ton of stability. Now you don't have to have all of them for us to say, okay, this is a safe spot or that we do want to go close to failure. And the you know, taking, let's say all of that and say, okay, it doesn't overload the short, it overloads the length in. So we have the leg press. The leg press is multi-joint movement, heavier in the length of position, lots of tissue, doesn't load the spine, has a ton of stability. So we have two things going for it. Now you can say, okay, I look at the leg press and I look at it in the middle ground of like, 
it's it's safe to work close to failure, but it, it will also fuck you up more than maybe a leg extension to failure. And so we have to, not that it needs to get so complicated, but for those who want to kind of learn a little bit more about this, if you have these categories, the more boxes that are checked, the more you you need to identify, okay, like what, what is going to happen if I go to failure? Going to failure on an RDL, I look at as potentially the worst. I mean, not, not a bad thing at the end of the world. When I say failure, I mean, well into several reps where I probably would have had you stop because technique has changed so much. Um, but then you get all of that stability in a leg press. And so, okay, uh, maybe if I'm in an RDL, I'm just, just if we're looking at it on a spectrum, maybe an RDL, I'm like, hey, I'm in that like one to four. And then if I'm in the leg press, I'm in that like zero to three. And I start to see this spectrum and that spectrum for me and for you, I know has now moved into negative numbers where there's exercises where I'm like, I gotta keep going, right? Like I just gotta keep going. So what are some exercises where you feel like I would really lean into pushing into failure and potentially into the negative RIR air quotes uh, of partials and, and what might be some of the, again, the opposite of these things that come to mind? Yeah. A movement where the strength curve and resistance curve both are short. I just like, there's, it just feels like nothing's happening if you don't go at least to failure and beyond. Um, so, you know, you can look at your like dumbbell lateral raise or your dumbbell row. Um, any of the, those two are great examples. Um, yeah, I mean, those are probably the two that stand out the most to me. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like these days I didn't, I didn't, um, I guess I wasn't as just aware back in the day when I'm doing back work or I'm doing leg extensions that the machine is just hardest in, in the short position. I'm just so much more aware now that there's just so much more for more stimulus I'm leaving on the table in that set. And provided I have the stability, like a chest support or a leg extension, I'm just starting to be like, wow, I'm, it's like so tangible that I have many more reps in me for just what feels like in the moment, no extra cost, maybe local, like a lo some local pain, but like, you know, we did lap pull downs today, Jenna and I, and I, and, and I just was like, I'm secure in the seat. You know, I can't touch my chest anymore, but like, there's like four or five more reps of stimulus that like, it's not costing me my forearms, not burning. Like, and it, are you feeling more and more these days that you're just so aware of that stimulus that's there? Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. It's back in the day, like I'd be doing these short overload movements and I'd go to failure and I'd be like, wow, that really hurts. Like that was a great set, you know, because you feel it and you're like, I couldn't have done any more. And so that was like, you check the box and you're like quality set. I'm good to go. Um, but now, yeah, I mean, as soon as you realize, and I don't know when exactly this happened sometime in the last five years where I realized that if I just try another lat pull down, I lose an inch. And then you're kind of like, okay, do I need to use momentum so I can like get it to my chest? Or is it like, okay, that I lost an inch? Okay, let's happen. Let's try again. Oh shit. Now I've lost two inches. Should I have used momentum so that I get a full rep or like, is that okay? You know, and it just goes down the chain and eventually you've done 12 extra reps. That's actually the number I find on, on rows and pull downs. I find that I can do 12 extra reps from when I can no longer do a full range of motion rep. And that's like an insane number. Cause I'll do a set of eight and then get 12 partials and suddenly I've done 20 reps. Yeah. And, and it's all about acknowledging that that set counts more than one set without those partials. You can't be like, oh, it's just one set. And so we do need to acknowledge that they're like, you know, and of course you do, that's the point. I mean, the point is to get more st stimulus. That's why you're doing those extra partials. I think it's 
mostly it's come down to e like a um, perfectionist ego of like you got to do full range of motion like a lot of us were like kind of funneled into this like a uh, evidence-based philosophy of doing things the right way with full rom and then you see other people at the gym using partial rom or less rom and it's like an automatic negative thing and then you realize actually this might be a tool that maybe the people that i'm seeing at the gym are using you know unintentionally um but actually the the real issue is and I don't actually think the standardization, I was going to say standardization is the real issue, but it's just a little muddy to track. And so I think that like, I forgot who said tracking hygiene. That might've been the, uh, well, Hello. yeah, who had said something about tracking hygiene, which I totally resonate with. I think that's being able to, com being able to communicate how to accomplish pursuit, how to accomplish um, tracking that and progressing in it is and communicating that to somebody who is just not just learning to lift, but maybe new to this stuff. That's the real, I mean, both of us run group programs. And so we both wrestle with the same problem of like, I know this is good, but I need to communicate it in a way where, where it's digestible because truthfully, I don't have to do this. People can make gains without like the partials and stuff. And so I'm going to push people to do this. I need it to be something that is tangible where someone can track it. How have you been doing that in your group? Yeah, so we have not done the um, pre-established range of motion yet, where you're basically like, I'm going to cut range of motion at 60% of full and then just do reps to that point. Um, I've actually just started experimenting with that myself in the last two or three months, but more like specifically in the last month. Um, how about you? Have you messed around with that stuff? Well, I know I'm guessing we've both done. So you you introduced me to reverse drop sets and, and reverse drop sets are in essence, like a clean way to make this happen because you do a rep match technique. And so we, we kind of have to apply something that feels very tangible for people to apply it and feel good about it. So doing something like a rep match technique makes it objective. And you had mentioned like a pre uh, decided amount, like a percentage of the range of motion. I have not done that. I'm doing that for myself right now. That's what I mean. I haven't done that yeah. in the group programs either. In the either. group, yeah. we've done a, a several uh, lengthened rep match in, a, in an attempt to like get people to do lengthened partials without actually thinking too much about that standardization of range of motion because they'll standardize it with rep count. And so certainly have done like a like a, a row. First set is a full ROM failure set. When your elbows don't pass your body, you're done. Second is go grab 10 more pounds and just match reps. Whatever happens, happens. Yep. Um, and that's been super fun because yep. again, I think it's a clean way to do it, but there's probably something to... I think what I think I'll I think what I will do the first one I will do will be um something where it's really clean and objective like a overhead pull down to the nose. I think that when I'm thinking about like what's going to trip people up is having different machines with different markings and I think a, like an overhead pull down where you stop where the bar is at nose height I feel like everyone's going to have that option available or like a curl where we're only curling maybe to, to the, the forearms parallel yeah, right yeah. Forms parallel something that isn't going to have hundreds of people with hundred different, different machines with hundred different markings, Yeah, but might be nice and clean and objective. And um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's, it, that's one of the challenges we have with the group program, but I, but I do like that, that as the challenge. Yeah. We uh, yeah. So, so to, to, yeah, we do the same thing, uh, add 20% weight, match the reps to the prior set. So that's perfect for short overload movements. Uh, mm -hmm. One way we actually have done and I hadn't thought about it like this, but for years we've been using, I guess, what would be called like a dumbbell X lateral raise, which is basically like if if this would be a T, then you're more just like going out like halfway to form an X. And so we've been doing those for a while as the at-home swap for uh, a dual cable lateral raise. 
Sweet. And, Love that. Yeah. So that's actually, I guess, the very first one that we've done with like the pre-established range of motion type thing. But we haven't. Yeah, that's a really good idea to use the lat pull down to the nose or something along those lines first. Uh, the way that Milo described it, where joints form a right angle. Um, that's in well, Seedman shout out. Is it? That's well, Joel, Joel Seedman's all about like joint right angle, 90 oh, okay. degrees of everything, you know, it's just cracking. It's hysterical that that would be the, the point, but it makes sense. That's yeah. more identified. I, I think intuitively that's where I stop most of my, uh, my movements anyways, when I'm trying to bias the length and position with like a pre-established range of motion stop. Um, but ultimately, man, like you said the other day, or you put a post up about it or something, like I am just the most intrigued by this research because it's it's a it's novel. It's just like something new to experiment with. And God knows I I'm looking for new things to get excited about after this long training. Um, but also, as you said, for uh, efficiency and just, you know, now I can basically do like today I did four sets of side delts, five sets of hamstrings and two sets of quads. So I did like 11 total sets. I hit three muscle groups and I'm like completely trashed. And so um, you know, before implementing some of these strategies and techniques and stuff that probably would not have felt like sufficient volume. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the pursuit of finding opportunities like to that are objective and applicable, like for me, for me and you, I feel like I just in our own training, I might find some ways that are like slightly less objective, just, and, and more intuitively progress. But I feel like just like we're doing a, like an incline dumbbell lateral raise where you're laying back and your arms are kind of like in an incline curl they're an extension behind you yeah, and you're, yeah. you're lengthened a bit and we're only counting the reps up to 90 degrees and after you can't do 90 you just fuck off with that and you just pull up into the sticking point wherever you feel that that is and you keep going until you literally cannot move your arm um, and you just don't track those and you just kind of i find it to be a nice switch from numerical tracking to stimulus pursuit. It's like the minute you can't do the 90 degrees anymore, I want you to turn your brain just into I'm get, getting stimulus. I don't need to worry about which rep it was or whatever. Perfect reps, get the stimulus. We don't need to track it. We can keep that standardized. Hey, you did 10 90 degree reps. We'll go for 11 next week. And after you get that 11th one, well, let's go into these length into the sticking point reps. But that, that it's, that'll be a fun pursuit. And I uh, yeah, especially for at-home trainees who don't have necessarily as many opportunities to overload like the positions just by body position, manipulation, cables, machines, ar different arcs. You know, we just have like dumbbells most of the time um, or, or whatever, free weights, barbells and stuff. I feel like there's there's a big emphasis for the at-home trainee, a big opportunity for the at-home trainee to to maximize and, and, and use their equipment in slightly different ways. Mm -hmm. Yep, totally. Let's talk about the rep range stuff because I think one of the take-homes was that, hey, if you're closer, uh, if you're doing lower reps, you didn't, you didn't have to get as close to failure. And if you were doing higher reps, you had to get closer to failure. Um, was that something you were surprised about and what, what sort of thoughts came to mind when you thought of that, or when you heard that, when you read that? Yeah, no, it wasn't really surprising. I feel like that actually is in line with some of the other prior research, um, that, that I've seen across the, the way. And, um, so that didn't surprise me first off. And then it, it just like makes sense because um, like I mentioned in the beginning, when I was giving like the initial recap of this thing, as the reps get higher, it becomes more ambiguous whether you're actually at failure or not. Like, are you just thinking that, man, this leg extension really hurts because I've done 18 of them and I really don't want to do 27 of them. So I'm going to falsely 
slow down reps and let the lactic acid accumulation, you know, essentially stop me before the muscle itself is, is at true failure. Um, I think that's, that's very ambiguous with higher reps. Um, and then with lower reps, following what I said, kind of about the effective reps model and looking at the literature, uh, with these, like, as you said, the, the checklist you have of big compound movements that, uh, are lengthened, overloaded and potentially axially loaded, uh, maybe lack stability that, that all generally tend to get trained in that five to eight rep range. Uh, there's just a ton of stimulus and, and it's something that even it's cool. The literature supports it, but it's something that you can just feel. Like if you just train in higher rep ranges, uh, man, the, the burn, I guess, could could be a little falsely. It could lead you falsely and make you feel like you're getting something out of higher rep ranges, even if you're not. But when you're doing lower rep ranges, you can tell that maximal effort is required for you to complete a rep from the beginning. Like I do a six rep set of hack squats and from the first rep, I have to be completely engaged, focused, and uh, and and putting in maximal output to complete that first rep, uh, much less to complete the fifth or the sixth rep. Yeah, for sure. It, it, you are right where you're like, yeah, we could talk about theoretically why this is possible. I just put my group through a higher rep mesocycle and they're cracking up that I posted kind of about that when you might, might want to use higher reps. And and I did that. I, I gave my group that program and then like they all joke that I like gave them higher reps and then ran off to Africa for my honeymoon and like, just like absolutely murdered them and just like ran off on them. Um, but they all experienced that. And, and it's cool to talk about theory and, and we will, but like there is something to me, I think when you are talking about, okay, if you're doing higher reps, you're going to have more metabolite buildup, more of these hydrogen ions, whatever. It's going to hurt more in a different way in like an actual pain sort of way versus not a little bit more of like a local actual pain versus like a, I literally can't move this thing sort of thing. Um, and that introduction of more, what I would consider the word pain, I think now predisposes people to be able to deal with that for longer or shorter based on their own personal pain tolerance. I think if I give you your five rep, six rep, seven rep, eight rep max on hack squat, you're going to see less variation in people's pain tolerance. Now, I, I I, I say that thing, there's probably still some variation of like people really be able to grit out hard reps, period. But I think the difference in how in like pain tolerance and pain threshold for people is becomes more of an issue at higher reps. And so you're going to see just worse results because you're going to have a higher percentage of people who have quit because, yeah, they don't tolerate pain as well. Um, and all of a sudden they're five RIR, but it really burns. And for them, their pain threshold is lower. And so they are this introduction of pain, you know, they're going to call it quits a bit sooner. Um, and so I think that that's something that we all have felt the higher reps hurt more and you're, you're more likely to want to quit because it hurts. And in reality, if we did a set of eight, you might actually be able to push yourself all the way to failure without that actual sensation of metabolite buildup pain, forcing you to, to stop. I also think you touched on a big one, which is boredom. Honestly, like you're like, you're, you kind of said, if I'm doing a set of six hack squat, like I have to be max, I have, I have to have a maximal intent from the get go. And that, that to me is less fatiguing because the set might take less time. I have less reps versus like if I'm doing a set of 25, I know that the first 20, like, like I can just chat with Jenna and it's like, oh, okay, after the 20th one, now I need to like really be maximally intent, like intent with what I'm doing. And if I'm not talking to Jenna and I'm, I have hundred percent intent into every rep, I mean, Jesus Christ, that's fatiguing for 25 reps. 
Um, that to me, and I'm gonna ask Zach and Josh this too, but that idea that we're worse at assessing RIR and potentially worse at just getting to failure because there's this, this pain buildup, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but to me, it it feels like it might muddy this, this finding a little bit. It's like, it's because we're better at assessing RAR and we're actually better at getting close to failure. Um, I think it would stand to reason that I'm not surprised that lower, uh, that, that lower rep, sorry, that, that getting actually close to failure and lower rep not needing to be as close kind of makes sense to me. Um, it kind of makes me think that is this just, going like, like I'll pivot. Let me pivot that a one RIR is easier to assess. Now I'm not talking about rep ranges. Sorry. I'm talking about proximity to failure that it's easier to assess a one RIR than a five RIR. Right. And so the people in the study that were doing zero and one RIR, people that were going to involuntary concentric failure saw the best results. But is that like, I also couldn't get out of my mind. Yeah. But that's because those people for sure did that. And you yeah. might be comparing them to people who subjectively thought they were at five RIRs. We might be comparing mm. fucking involuntary failure to 11 RIR or something. Um, and so I, I'm just like, yeah, you know, the people who failed involuntarily versus the people who thought they were at three RIR, like yeah. I bet there's a huge gap between those truthfully. Yeah. You, you make it much more objective when you actually fail. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point as well. I actually have a question for you that I've been thinking about as well in regards to this, which is, um, in this study, they separated the buckets into those that, uh, essentially went to the point, like call it zero to one RIR where they believed they couldn't make another rep, um, but they didn't actually try it versus those that actually went and attempted a rep and then failed, um, where you are in your journey training how often do you think that you are at failure and don't try another rep and feel like you would have been wrong and maybe like you actually could have gotten another rep but you thought you couldn't yeah i i, I go I, my knee jerk was to say never was yeah. that i'm i'm so dialed in to like i suppose what i'm capable of that that i'd be very very good that I could, with a very high level of accuracy, tell you that I'll fail on the next one. Yeah. Um, and and that also goes back to the exercise it is, because I was talking to Jenna about incline curls this morning, and we were doing incline curls. And I know that the last three reps I did, I flexed my shoulder a bit, and I like moved yeah. my elbow forward. And so, you know, I could have told you exactly when that was going to start happening, and voluntarily went into that a little bit, because I, I knew that my technique would adjust my you know, front delts would start to work a little bit, whatever, but on a comp, like a length, like these movements, like lengthened overload compounds, low stability, axial load stuff with a very high level of accuracy. I think I could, um, like, I suppose in saying that I would de devalue the actually going to that place. Like, right. of, of, of in, like what we're talking about for the listener is like, how important is it that you actually go down on your squat and don't come back up? Like how important is it that you actually get pinned by the leg press or pinned by the hack squat at the bottom or pinned by the, the bench press at the bottom. Like how important is it that you actually go to that point? Um, or how good are we, you know, you asked me, but how good are we, are people at identifying exactly when that place would be? Um, the study did find that people who went to that point saw better results, I think, than what they called volitional exactly. failure, uh, yeah, yeah. where they, so it, it stands to reason that most people aren't as good as, as you and me, uh, at yeah, identifying that. was my that. assumption as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. but like at the same time, like I wonder my, 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 my question really is 
if you're really, really good at assessing that and you know very confidently and accurately that if you go down to attempt another one that you're not coming back up, like, is there still value in going down there and trying that? And my, my guess would be that maybe minimally there's slight stimulus down there, potentially. Um, I don't do it. Like, I don't go down and test myself. I mean, I mean let's be real. There's there yeah. is stimulus there, right? Yeah. Uh, you're just doing another eccentric of the squat like that. That's yeah. stimulus, but yeah. worth it. I would boil it down to the exercise selection for sure. I yeah, think yeah. I, I, what I will say, just, I know you, you, you didn't say the, the opposite, but what I will say is that I, I quite like getting to involuntary concentric failure. Let's say I quite like doing that at, at all opportunities um, where it is safe. And so like, yeah. even, you know, if it's a short overload movement, it doesn't happen so abruptly. You can usually push into a high percentage of the range of motion. And then that slowly drops off. And so you're kind of approaching this end point a little bit slower. You're seeing it coming. Um, if you're doing something like a leg press, you might go from like a two RR, you might go from like a slow-ish rep to a slower rep to, to you're done. You can't, you literally get pinned. And so it might happen a bit more abruptly, but in, in something like a mid-range movement with a, let's say like a lateral raise or, I mean, it's, I know that that's technically a short overload movement, but it's not the full range of motion. So I'm always confused as to what to call that. But let's say a bicep curl is more of like a mid range exercise where it's hardest halfway up. Um, right. Yeah. When there's an opportunity to go to a point where I can't complete another rep or to the point where the range of motion drops off notably, and then, you know, kind of craps out. Like I find at this point, maybe it's the pursuit of efficiency, but I, I just feel comfortable going there. And you and I've been on the podcast before. We're like, I just don't feel like those extra couple are that fatiguing to me. It just doesn't feel like exponentially more fatiguing to me. I, I don't know if that's something you've changed your mind on at all. No, I agree. I actually think the example you put of the incline dumbbell curl is an interesting one too, because um, I don't often sacrifice technique like that to, to get another rep, but it's something that I've been thinking about. Like before you said that, even in the last few days, weeks, um, that maybe that's just like another way to, to take a muscle that in a safe manner past its, you know, technical failure point, like, Hey, let me just ask my front delt to help a little bit in a completely safe manner. And like in my tracking, if, if we're talking about like the importance of tracking hygiene or whatever, like I would count the full reps and then I would say plus three partials or three yeah. with momentum or however you want to describe it. But I think that there's definitely value in doing that where it's safe to do so. I, I tend to not track those almost because like I tend to just, uh, like if I track it, I'm more likely to see it next week and feel like I need more. And then in that regard with things where I'm like so close to failure and I'm actually intentionally modifying technique, I feel like I, I don't want to like, I don't want to make another game out of it where I'm like, I'm doing a fourth partial. Like, I just want that to me to be like, okay, like now grit your fucking teeth and do whatever you can today sort of thing. And so if, if you're just tracking it and you can be so, too, super neutral about just like looking at it and not obsessing about like progressing, progressing with an extra partial always, uh, you need to be really on top of your intent because you can make a real game of it. Like you can do, you can make your partials more partial and all of a sudden get a fourth one. And you're like, mm, I didn't really do more stimulus this time. And, you know, mm. so I usually opt for like just an effort-based uh, intent with some of those partials, unless I'm standardizing range of motion and actually counting those for sure. Yeah. What if you then forget the next week that you did the, the more flexed version of them and you just stop your set at failure. And then you go back and you're like, shit, I did so oh, much less stimulus than the I'd prior week. That, we're, that I'm going to that point for sure. I definitely okay. would make a note that I'm doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah I, I just haven't felt 
the more fatigue side of things at all. And as I, I think that that could be because, and I, I, I think it could be confounded by the fact that I'm not flying close to the sun with my recovery capacity. And so like I'm, if, if there's a line at the bottom, which is a threshold needed to make gains, and there's a line that's kind of far above that, which is the most I could recover from, you know, I'm at a place between those lines where if I go a little harder than I was supposed to, I didn't, I didn't overflow. And so that recognition of like it, I know that the study didn't find what I'm about to say. They found that even people that were training with higher volumes saw better gains with uh, getting closer to failure, but there's obviously a limit to that. Uh, and so I think my volume is so low that I need all of that stimulus and I could I could recover from all of my sets being death defying. And there's something to be said about that, whether or not that's like an optimal, that's not necessarily the pursuit. Um, but I think that that's a confounder. Both of us are on the relatively low volume end of the spectrum and thus it is required of us almost to go to that length to, to make it worthwhile. Yep, for sure. Keep it efficient. Yeah, keep it efficient. Um, okay. Um, anything else that I wanted to to kind of go through? Um, um, have you felt like there's anything in terms of uh, exercise selection, new stuff that you've enjoyed doing lengthened partials on? Like I've seen maybe your your hip extension lately. Uh, you talked today about sitting forward in the ham curl, which I think is always a, a a tricky one because I think that machine to machine, some of them are not comfortable to do that. Mm -hmm. The angle of the seat sometimes, and so. Um, anything, anything lately? Oh, sorry. I'm going to ask you that question. You know, what's something that's been, that's been questioning me, uh, that I've been questioning a bit is people who are doing, I saw somebody the other day shitting on incline curls and the knock was that at the bottom, at the absolute bottom when your arms fully extended, if your arm is straight down, there's no tension on the bicep, which is a fact. Um, and then the person said do facing away cable curls instead. And then lined up the facing away cable curl, where when the arm is straight, it was directly in line with the cable. And I got to tell you, 99% of people you see doing a facing away cable curl at the fully lengthened position are directly lined up with the cable, where there is now also no tension. And then hmm. they reach in the mid-range at 90 degree el elbow mm -hmm. flexion, that's where they reach maximum tension, just like on an incline curl. So I'm not arguing that that incline curl, man, if we could keep a little bit of tension there at the bottom, that it wouldn't be better. But this upset, I literally, I'll, I'll send you the post afterwards, but it was just like, okay. yeah, don't do the incline curl, do this. And I'm like, you know that you just lined up your elbow or your arm again with the line of force. And there is also at this point, so if you're going to do incline, if you're going to do a facing away cable curl, like you need to step forward enough such that yeah. that, that cable is actually not lined up with your arm at the bottom. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. I actually just started doing them, uh, seated with like a, an incline oh. cable curl. That was pretty, pretty fire. Um, so stability. Yeah. yeah. To answer your question, uh, I guess the thing I'm most experimenting with at the moment is just kind of, as I said earlier, the, the 60% range of motion stuff with like the range of motion stop. Um, and so this all came out of a conversation that I had with Milo. Um, and he had called me out on a podcast and said that the way that I do length impartials isn't evidence-based because I go past failure. And, uh, this was actually before the, the data-driven strength meta regression came out. And, uh, so we were having this conversation and I was like, dude, the only reason that the way that I do partials is not evidence-based is because no one's actually studied them this way. But like to say that the way I'm doing them is somehow wrong or like improper is it's based obvious. on all of this research around failure that lacks so much content context of the people that were studied, by the way, the, the untrained, like our whole basis of understanding of like how close you need to go to failure was built upon untrained individuals. 
And then also not with a nuance on exercise selection. And so this idea of like, you don't need to go to failure and thus you, you are going beyond failure. So you've kind of violated evidence-based right. is, yeah, lacks both of those pieces of nuance. I think, I think if you're shortened overload, it's never been studied. That's just never right. been studied. Exactly. It's never SFR been studied. Of, yeah. of pushing into partials on a short overload movement. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm with that. Yeah. So, uh, so essentially what I got out of this conversation with Milo was that the pre-established range of motion is actually probably most applicable on movements that are lengthened overloaded. Because one thing that's prohibitive about the way that I do partials is that I can't do them on lengthened movements because I've, I've basically been only able to do them on short movements because you fail and then you keep going and you get some partial reps. Um, his approach pre-establishing range of motion actually was kind of like a light bulb moment in my head because I was like, oh, I can do this on overhead tricep extensions, on dual cable lateral raises, on uh, lengthened overloaded seated leg curls. Like you and I now have the awesome same uh, X mark leg curl leg extension machine. So now I can set that machine super lengthened and then I can still do partials on it. Uh, whereas before I would be setting it up mid or short and then doing partials after failure. So it's actually been kind of like a revelation and just something I've now been experimenting with because uh, like I still kind of hold to the idea that I'm not a fan of these pre-established range of motion partials for these big compound um, lengthened overload movements, call it your hack, your RDL, your, your back squat, whatever. Milo seems to be doing them on those. I tried them and I, eh, I don't know. I, maybe it just takes practice and refinement. Um, but I am opening up my 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 brain and, and I'm accepting this as something I can use on isolation movements that are more lengthened, overloaded. And then uh, we'll see what, what happens from there. You, you tried it on a hack, bottom 60% I, of the hack? I did, yeah. I did it on my pendulum and on my hack. Um, and it was just weird. I've only done it once. I'm sure I would get better at it. So I don't want to like completely talk shit about it. But um it was really hard <laughs> as if that's like a, like a good reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but no, it was, it was, it was really hard. It was, the breathing was, was hard to figure out. Um, because that, that seems weird. The breathing. I've gotten quite good at not locking out at the top of my hack squat and pendulum squat. Like I just kind of hit the top and release and, and descend. And I've got that down to like a good cadence now where I can breathe through it and stuff. Um, but the, the stopping just above parallel, uh, threw me a bit for a loop. Yeah, the breathing would be would you'd have to re, like it's almost subconscious now. You'd have to like redo that cadence for sure. Yeah. I'm sure I would learn it and I'd get better at it. But um, I tried it. I wasn't a huge fan, so I'll push it off and maybe try again next cycle. Would 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 Milo take it to a point of getting pinned? Would he sixty percent that to the end, or just say, hey, sixty percent is my full well, run? I can't he specifically that. uses this pre-established range of motion so that he can use RIR. That was right. his whole argument: is that sure. my way is an evidence-based because I'm not using RIR, and right. RIR is is evidence-based um what this was again before the the meta and i think uh like I, I talked to milo when we were at n1 and it's not like he he went back on that by any means but i kind of gave him like a little nudge and I, I saw him doing some length and partials after failure with Cass on the pull down and i was like oh look milo's you know not evidence-based like going past failure um yeah but once once you once your argument not that i milo's brilliant dude I'm like what well, what once you're argument for doing pre-established range of motion is such that you can use RIR, you throw out failure as a word. Now it now it's this this it needs total new context. Like now you're using 
a never been studied before approach with a never been uh, assessed definition of failure, which is when I can no longer do 60% of the range of mode. So I get it from a standardization perspective that I'm down with. Like I get that, 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 okay, when I can't do 60, three reps from when I can't do 60 is a three, is my three RR for this move. I'm down with that. But like you've created a new thing there. And so be going beyond failure on a short overload movement into partials in a high stability environment where there's no neurological fatigue really, or low amounts and low amounts of cardiovascular fatigue feels like we're just entering new territory. And uh, I think that that's, it just strikes me as like, no, you got to use RIR. I'm like, yeah, but you just invented a new way to use RIR. Like the fact that you can, I did like we, you can't apply RIR, which has been, we've established everything we know about RIR using full range of motion. Now you're using RIR in the context of 60% of the ROM, which is a totally new thing. It sounds, it seems like a totally new thing. Uh, Yeah. Well, certain exercises are just different range of motion. Like I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but there are exercises that already exist that are just like a different range of motion than a different version of that same exercise. And so essentially he's just setting up a different point for what task failure is defined yeah, as. Yeah, yeah. Sure, for tracking purposes, hygiene wise, totally makes sense. I totally, yeah. totally. But like you're, you can't refer back to literature that says two or three RIR is best and apply it to this lengthened 60%. I just feel like yeah, that yeah. isn't, fair of, of uh, a correlate yeah, yeah yeah it's taking like two evidence-based uh ideas and then combining them together into one yeah it's interesting standardizing it though I, I i suspect i might do something similar with my group though like just for tracking purposes of like yeah of of but uh, but i might even i don't know man i might even have certain exercises where we start at 60 and you and you track you when you keep can't going do 60 anymore but then yeah. you keep going for stimulus um yeah, especially with a short overload movement. I'm just so cognizant these days of the stimulus that's just a little bit left on the table. Yeah. Well, one interesting piece about the the way that these different movements act differently when you're doing these pre-established range of motion partials, right, is that you're doing a, a really heavily loaded lengthened compound and you're actually using less weight than you would for the full range of motion. But when you look at a short overload movement, like your row and stuff like that, you're actually using more weight than you would for the full range of motion. And then I've found for those like, middle movements like the dual cable lateral raise and the face away curl and stuff like that i actually pretty much using the same weight whether it's 60 percent range of motion or full range of motion which is also very interesting um because it just goes to show that maybe there just isn't much going on in that like top 40 percent of the range of motion anyways that makes that's an interesting finding and you know why you know what was something i found is that actually when i did when i did my leg extension um and i didn't make it more lengthened overloaded and then, and then I made it a little bit more length and overloaded. And it turns out I didn't actually need to change my weight very much. Yeah. Uh, and it, and I was like, oh, that's interesting that I thought I was going to need to go heavier. I'm like, oh, I'm working more length and I'm going to be stronger there. And I was like, wait a second. I failed at more or less the same point, um, which was an interesting thing. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to more of this, but only through a lazy eye of, I want to, I want to be able to continue to lift, you know, 120 minutes a week or something and, and get, yeah. and get as much out of it as possible. Yeah. Ah, uh, I wanted to talk cardio stuff, but I got both of us probably have to get out of here. But we'll uh, anything anything up on the on your race? How's how's training for that going? Training's going great, man. I've uh, really upped my cardio dose recently. I've uh, gone up to six zone two sessions a week, pretty much at this point. So I'm lifting three or four days a week and six zone two sessions wow. and one like interval zone five session. Awesome. Um, and I'm finally starting to see some good progress. So, um, 
the lactic acid clearance, lactate in my legs, the issue that I've talked about a lot where I just can't seem to can keep a consistent cadence because my legs just blow up so quickly. That's almost completely gone now. Um, and like, uh, I, I wish I had a fucking power meter cause this would be a cooler story if I did, but, um, I did the same exact loop that I did a month prior when I was only doing like three or four zone two sessions a week. And I, it was 15.2 miles per hour four weeks ago. And I did it in 15.8 miles per hour, uh, this time. And so, yeah, who knows? There's wind, there's, there's other things like that, but 0.6 miles per hour in a four week period, it felt like I was, uh, much faster. The whole thing took, it was 52 minutes instead of 55. So I knocked three minutes off of it and all the other metrics stayed the same. Um, awesome. so anyway, it's working, it's getting better. I'm getting better. I did a 27 mile ride yesterday, which was the longest one I've done ever. Um, and kept all of my metrics exactly where they're supposed to be regarding like heart rate and output and stuff like that. So um feeling confident that at least my zone two is my zone two. Um, I had questioned, you know, like every time I would do 45 to 60 minutes, I'd be like, yeah, I like kind of want this to be over. And it was more about boredom, but it was also like my butt hurts from sitting on the seat. And like, you know, there's a number of factors that go into it, but it's cool to see that I could keep that pace for like another hour on top of the initial period. And I think I could have probably kept it for another hour or two after that. So, um, all positive stuff seems like adaptations are occurring and I'm not losing any gains in the gym, which is cool. Did you, did you feel, let me know if you have to go at some point. I'm um, good. Did you feel like anything recently, whether it's the podcast that we were talking about, um, whether it's just further discussion and reading on, you know, whatever, now that you've, there's a difference where you're just like, Hey, I'm doing cardio for health versus like, Hey, I'm training for this event. Uh, has your mind changed at all? And, you know, we talked and I think we were both not in our infancy, but like we were both high on like our first <laughs> foray into seeking out information about this topic. Yeah. Uh, have there been any like big bullets that you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I just gently shifted my opinion on X or Y or Z. Yeah. I mean, that podcast I sent you has had a huge impact. I've listened to almost every episode on there now. I've gone like super deep dive. Um, and so it's, in, it's, I've talked about this on another podcast too, I think on my own and another one, but I almost feel like ignorant and naive to have basically just taken what Peter Atia and Inigo San Milan say, and just be like, wow, look at these guys. Like, this is amazing. And it's not that they're wrong. The thing is like, like they're not wrong in the way that they're talking about it and they are using evidence. It's just like, I feel naive that I didn't look at this the same way that I look at strength training and weightlifting. Uh, yeah, you're nodding your head. Like you agree. It's like, of course, of course, there's gotta be, you know, nuance and, and different things involved in here that like, I'm just not grasping because it's too new for me. Um, and so, yeah, since listening to, to more of that podcast, I've been listening to Alex Viata a little bit. I've been listening to Alyssa Olnick. Um, and, the idea of um, uh, critical power, that's such an interesting concept in that like you can either do something forever or you can't do it forever. And so trying to define zone two as like, basically you could go forever. It's like, no, you fucking can't go forever. Like you couldn't even walk forever. And that's like the bottom of zone one. So, so there's going to be a point in zone two where 
lactate accumulates. It's just a matter of like where and when that happens. Um, and then, you know, listening to the experts there, it's like, even within that one podcast, which I appreciate about the host is he's brought on, you know, Andrew Coggin on one spectrum, who's like any zone works, right? Like you just, it's, it's a matter of balancing intensity and duration and it'll all work and mitochondrial function and all that good stuff. Um, then you had Dr. Joyner on who actually was on a Tia's podcast as well. And he has this theory that all roads lead to Rome. Um, because in Tokyo in two, 1964, there were three finishers in the 15, I think it's, the, no, I think it's, uh, yeah, it might be 1500 meters. Yeah. It's not, and more they, than that, though. yeah, they finished one foot apart from each other. And one of them did intervals. One of them did long distance, steady state. And one of them did like some sort of hodgepodge mix of all of them. And they all finished one, two, three. And then you had this other guy, I think his name was Steven Seiler. Come on. And he was, you listen to that one too. And he was talking about the polarized model where basically 80 or 90% of your time should be below VT1. And VT1 is like the beginning of zone two. And so he was saying 80 to 90% of your time should be below VT1, meaning you're essentially in like the top end of zone one. And then- 10 or 20% of your time would be spent at like race pace or, or like doing intervals and stuff like that. And he, you know, encourages you not to spend so much time in the middle. And so kind of just digesting all of that and taking it all in and applying it into my own. Um, I think it's all just been super helpful and has increased my understanding of the cardiovascular for health as well as for performance. Yeah. The, the big one is the ignorance. The audacity that I had is striking, um, and I what I what I what I feel is that this is often sometimes what happens. And then the one analogy that came to mind for me was doctors who talk about nutrition, and it was like it, it was like a I had just enough knowledge to be dangerous, uh, and that's not Tony that it was wrong. Like you said, it just was not with the not said with the level of uncertainty that it should have been said, um, and the the. You know, I've been working with Alex for a bit and there's just not as clear a cut. Like you just said, not, there's not a clear cut way to go about this. And what I'm realizing is that there's, when it comes to hypertrophy, I get goosebumps because I think that there's such an interesting polarization between the or difference between two of them. Hypertrophy, I have a, just another, another, which I felt for a while, but an even more love for it because of how simple it is compared to a performance pursuit of any kind. Like, bodybuilding is the is the performance version of hypertrophy training and it is still just about uh there's no performance aspect there's an accretion of muscle muscle tissue is the only adaptation now you can get it where you want it and lose fat and stuff but you're not performing in some way you're not trying to get physiological adaptations per se lactate clearance or or, or different amount of capillary densities or for the most part, you're like trying to do a lot of really hard sets and eat a lot of food and sleep a lot and get muscles in the right place to get the proportions right. But there's there's just such a difference when it comes to performance. And when we're talking about endurance events, there are so many potential limiting factors to someone's performance. It's like your ability to, your anaerobic capacity, your ability to, your how high your air quote lactate threshold is. Like how hard can I work before we see a steep rise in, in lactate production? Um, you know, your um, ability to maintain running form while under fatigue. You know, there's just, I mean, there's, you're, there's so many adaptations, um, that 
And like, all, I, I, I read one thing on polarized training. I'm like, oh, this is the way to go. I watched one YouTube video on polarized training. I'm like, oh, this is it. And then you find out that there's people doing, you know, a mixed bag of things um, everywhere from a, a theory that I found quite interesting was this, um, it's almost like a shape where it's like a triangle. So it begins, like, let's say your race is over here on the right. You'd begin with very polarized training where you do very, a lot of low intensity and, you know, a little bit of very high intensity. So if you're running the mile, you, you know, you might do a lot of sprinting and a lot of, you know, maybe not sprinting, but very high intensity work and, and a lot of low intensity work. And you would move closer to more time spent at race pace as you got closer to the race, so almost like a, a general to specific, but not just general general on the polarized ends and you would move closer to a race pace as you went. And it's like, people are like, yeah, that can work, you know? And then there's like block periodization. We're like, yeah, that can work. Um, and the uncertainty of it is, is a little, um, it's a little unnerving actually, because it'd be nice if it was, as I'm learning it, I'm so hungry to learn, but it's not a nice prepackaged thing. It's not, um, you know, the way Alex works and the way Alyssa works and the way Peter and Inigo would do it and the way, you know, I, I just read the science of running, which I think you would enjoy. I thought it was a good book. Um, but there were certain things in there that I'm like, yeah, this guy has an idea of doing it a little differently. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to work back from, I've rewritten, I don't know about you, but I've rewritten my zone two suggestions oh, yeah. in my group oh, yeah. like three times now because yeah, three times. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's <laughs> like, okay, if you worked a little harder than normal, like you get this like post, uh, post exercise, uh, oxygen over, uh, an overshoot or whatever they call it, where it's like, you're, you're still getting mitochondrial adaptations. It's not like, like what I've learned the most that I would want to share with people is the benefit of zone two training. The biggest benefit is that you can do a lot of it without it being fatiguing. This, it's not that, like I have said on the podcast that like the point of zone two is that you're not burning a lot of carbohydrates. You're not making a lot of lactates. You're not blunting um, glycolysis or, or, or lipolysis so that you're getting more mitochondrial adaptations. And then that's all kind of happening. But um, the point of zone two is that it's easy enough that you can do a lot of it and recover from it and and not get muscle damage and not get limited by local muscle fatigue or local metabolite buildup or local muscle metabolism, whatever, whatever way you would want to call it. And it's like, it just, it brought me back down to earth of like, all right, like these are like man-made constructs, not based in unbelievably ironclad science meant to provide an athlete with structure, not such black and white lines. Um, and, and that's been like, I just, I almost want to re-record a new podcast, which may be fun we could do um, yeah. of like, but even then I would be like, you know, maybe we were still treading that line of- We uh, will, we'll have to do another one in like six months after that, so. Yeah, but it's good, it's good. It, it was definitely, it definitely humbling of like, I'm like, how dare I, you know, how dare yeah. I? You know? No, I felt the same way, exactly. But like, it's all part of the process of learning and like, um, we obviously still don't know half of what we need to know, you know? You um, find that too, though, that your your pursuit of this performance event is is way more, um, I don't know, just not difficult, but like I have a newfound, I've never trained for a performance, not that I'm training for an endurance event, but I'm just like learning more and doing some of it, but like I've never been a power lifter, I've never been an Olympic weightlifter, I've like dabbled in, you know, physique-based pursuits, but um, I, I, I was a soccer player, but I never really, even in, played for, you know, half a season in college, I never really bought into like, watching myself improve and figuring mm. out where I was weak and getting better. And I really have a newfound respect for like that pursuit and how difficult it can be and complex it can be and psychological. I mean, there's all this stuff about 
all the way down to like telling, you know, telling people that they're running faster, that their splits are faster, like makes them run faster. And there's so many of these like um, central governing model, like Tim Noakes central governing model. There's so many different, and we just, there's people that, that are like, yeah, that makes sense. But it's, it's a man-made construct that isn't based in like super ironclad science. And right. I just have a new respect for the pursuit of an endure of a performance, really performance driven outcome with fitness. Not something I've dabbled in a bunch. Yeah. I've done it a decent amount through the competitive CrossFit years. Um, and it's actually funny because when you were talking about that model of starting uh, at more endurance and then more uh, anaerobic and having them meet in the middle, that's actually the way that I programmed competitors in CrossFit and programmed my gym when we were setting up to compete. We would start at one end with a lactic anaerobic and it would be like, you know, 10 second, 15 second work with two or three minutes rest in between each interval. And then on the other end, you'd have like 60 minutes of steady state. And then each week over the course of like a 10 week cycle, they would get closer and closer and closer together until you're essentially at lactic threshold. And that would be like, Hey, you're ready to go for seven minutes and like hammer shit. Um, so it's an interesting uh, way that, that you frame that and just brought me back to that. But um, as far as training for my race, man, it's uh it's just been fun. Like I've just, it's just been fun to see adaptations occur so quickly and um, I haven't experienced rapid adaptation like that in many, many years. I mean, since I first started performing Olympic lifts in CrossFit, maybe 2009, um, that's when I last saw rapid progress. And so, uh, it's just been fun. It's been cool. And, uh, I am enjoying it and looking forward to the race. I mean, the race isn't until October, so I still have, uh, I still have a really, really long time of continuing to hammer this, but it's not just about performance. It's also health and, and blood markers. And I'm looking to, uh, see whether it does increase some of these functions and things that, that I'd like to see if it does, you know? Cool. All right, man, let's get you out of here. I, I would, I would be interested in a, in a, in maybe after the race is over for us to sit back down and be like, uh, just wear a full update on our thoughts, come full circle on our experience. Yeah. I think, I, I think I, I've taken a step back from, talking about it so much just in a, a sense of like i'm really at the at the at the infancy of learning about this stuff and and it, all good it's good to be humbled every now and again really like found a new appreciation for it for sure yeah i 100 percent agree cool man thanks for coming on i appreciate it we're gonna have to talk colorado stuff pretty soon i'm coming out yep. there for um i was supposed to come out in september for the program design course but jenna's uh brother's getting married that weekend so i just emailed them they're gonna let me move to uh another probably a biomechanics anatomy course. I watching people go for the second time. And when I went, they didn't have any equipment. They just right. had the functional trainers. And I'm like, fuck, man, I think I just got to have everything now. And I yeah. think I got to go back for that. So I think I'll head out there. And when I do come, come by and say, what's up for sure. Yeah, for sure. All right, brother. Sounds good. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of where optimal meets practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me. If you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes, that stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.